we will continue to, um, to read through the um, uh, narrative of uh, Joseph. And we, our scripture reading this morning starts in Genesis 43, verse 26. And we'll read through 44, verse 13. And right away after that, verse 14 to 34. So we'll continue reading. It's, um, that's our text for this morning. So we will um, read chapter 43 and starting in verse 26. <clears throat> so the first part of chapter 43 is about, uh, about the, uh, the discussion in the family of Jacob with his sons when they want to bring Benjamin because they have to go back to Egypt. Uh, and, and Jacob says, no, 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 we're not going to do that. And finally he has to give in. And so they, uh, uh, they, they, they make their second trip to, um, to Egypt. We start reading in verse 26 in Genesis 43. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed down before him to the earth. And he asked them about their well-being. And he said, is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And he answered, the servant of father is in good health, he is still alive. And he bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and he came out and he restrained himself and said, Serve the bread. So they set him in a place by himself and them by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews for that's an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his birthright. And the men looked astonished at one another. Then he took servants to them from before him, but Benjamin's servant was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. And he commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also, put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. When they had gone out of the city, and they were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, Get up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks, and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. So he overtook them, and he spoke to them these same words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? 
With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. And he said, No, now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. Then each man speedily let down his sack on the ground, and each opened his sack. So he searched. He began with the oldest, and left off with the youngest. And a cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. And here's the beginning of our text, since verse 14. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there, and they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Then Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah came near to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing. And do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And he said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was, when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, Go back and buy us a little food. But we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down, for we may not see the man's face, unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. And one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn to pieces. I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant our father with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? 
lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father. Let's find the reading from Scripture. In immediate response to the preaching of the gospel, we will sing Psalm 107, stanza 1. Psalm 107, verse 1. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, you will remember uh, the first visit of Joseph's brothers to Egypt. We looked at that last week. Genesis 42. It was quite, uh, quite unsettling. And just before they left, they talked among each other why they had to deal with that, all this trouble. God is punishing us, they said. It's our guilt. Because of what we did to our brother Joseph some 20 years ago. That conversation shows the beginning of a new awareness. And that's promising. However, it's only a start. The rupture in the covenant family must be healed. Unity must be restored. That's why that first meeting with Joseph needed a follow-up. To secure the future of God's people, the progress of God's work, there had to be a second confrontation. For only in the way of confession, and forgiveness, and mutual love, only then there will be reconciliation and harmony in the family of God. And it's getting there. The Holy Spirit is working on it. And what we read in our text this morning, we see amazing progress and change. The restored unity of God's people is on its way to become visible in Egypt. This is how the Lord himself directs it. At that time, the future of Israel was in Egypt. In his responsibility within this whole process, Joseph had tested his brothers three times until Judah is speaking in our text. Words that reflect the true gospel of Jesus Christ. We will see that. The first test was when they came to Egypt. And they were accused of being spies. The brother Simeon was held hostage. They went home with a demand to come back with their youngest brother Benjamin. So what would they do? The second test was when Joseph had dinner with them. That was no scripture reading. How would they treat Benjamin? Would you be jealous of Benjamin just as he had been of Joseph in the past? And yet he sees a different attitude. But Joseph wanted to know what was really in the hearts of the brothers. How strong was their new unity and new humility? And so he came with the third test. It was also in the scripture reading before the text. That's the test with the silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And then it becomes clear. That it is the grace of God restores the unity in God's covenant. That's the message this morning. God's grace restores unity in God's covenant. And we see that in our text in Judah's confession and then also in Judah's sacrifice. God's grace restores the unity in God's covenant in Judah's confession and in Judah's sacrifice. Congregation Genesis 43 and Genesis 44 tell us in great detail what happened when Joseph's brothers traveled to Egypt for the second time. Now this time, their youngest brother Benjamin is with them. They didn't have a choice, though. They needed food. 
food for the families. And if they would not take Benjamin along and, and introduce him to this Egyptian ruler, they would for sure risk Simeon's life and perhaps their own lives as well. But as you have noticed, they, they have a hard time convincing their father. You get the impression that there was a lot of arguing back and forth before the old patriarch gave in. Now, in the end, the hunger may have forced him to do so, but grudgingly, he didn't like it whatsoever. Now, when, when you read that, don't forget the perspective. It was Joseph who wanted to test his brothers by demanding that they should bring their youngest brother next time. But it was God himself who uses this famine in the ancient Middle East to bring about the result of Joseph's test. He made it work for his own purpose. After all, the result was not only important for Joseph to find out the attitude of his brothers, but in this way, the Lord himself forced Jacob and his sons to trust in him, to believe his promises, to acknowledge that he keeps his word and protects his covenant of grace. When they went to Egypt for the second time, Jacob had to entrust all his sons to the unknown and unfathomable ways of the Lord. All of them. And Jacob knows, when all my sons are gone, the future of God's covenant is at stake and there is nothing I can do about it. Sure, through Joseph, the Lord was already at work in Egypt to make room for the people, to prepare for the future of his work. But Jacob did not know that. And his sons did not know that. So when Jacob sees the caravan disappear in the distance, and he stays behind, Jacob can only rely on the grace of God. Just like his father Isaac had to entrust himself to the grace of God alone when one of, one of his two sons, Esau, turned away from the Lord. And Jacob had to flee to Laban in Haran. Isaac had nothing left but the grace of God. And so his grandfather Abraham had to entrust himself to the grace of God alone when he was instructed to sacrifice his beloved Isaac. And he did so. He went and he went there and he knew it's only the grace of God that can save this. You know, it may sound very good, and we say that to each other, right? To entrust yourself to the grace of God. But sometimes it's easier said than done. Sometimes we have to learn the hard way that God indeed does know best. We like to keep matters in our own hands, right? I mean, what is my future going to be like when I am not in control? I should be in control of my finances. I should be in control of my health. I should be in control of whatever happens. If I'm not in control, what's going to happen? Do you worry about that sometimes? But what about your relationship with God? What about God's promise, God's grace? Is that not your only source of hope and encouragement and security? In his old age, Jacob had to learn again that it is God alone who keeps his work going. 
who keeps his church going, who holds all his children in the palm of his hand. After all, that's why Joseph had been sent to Egypt already. And that's why the rest of the family was to follow later. Not just to starve them from starve, to, to save them from starvation, but also from the Canaanite idols and the pagan lifestyle. And all that with the purpose that one day the whole world would come to see the glory of God and the grace of God in Jesus, the Savior. The brothers must have made their second trip with some trepidation. You can imagine that, right? But then when they came there, they were treated totally different from the first time. It was weird. Simeon was released right away. No one was talking about spies. Everyone was friendly. The Egyptians made them feel comfortable and at home. And yet, this Egyptian ruler seems to know more than they think. He has these confusing surprises. Think of the seating arrangement at the dinner table. Oldest, second, third. How in the world does the man know that? And what about his special preference for Benjamin? However, as they are enjoying the dinner, their uncomfortable feeling disappear and... And one thing is true, the happy meal in Joseph's house, there was no sign of discord, of hatred or jealousy. It does give a picture of a new restored unity. New light is shining of the future of God's covenant. New harmony among Joseph's brothers. It was not complete yet. Joseph himself is not part of it. And neither is Jacob. Nevertheless, everything seems to be fine. They're having a great time. And then there's the rude awakening. You know, when Joseph saw them for the first time, it had dawned on him what God's plan was with all the things that had happened to him and why he had been given this unique position in Egypt. Not just to provide for his father and, and, and the family with food, but also to restore justice, to bring about restoration. In the confrontation with this stern Egyptian official, Joseph's brothers have to find the God of the covenant again. And in that way, they have to find each other again. Harmony rooted in the grace of God. Always remember what brings us together in the church and what keeps us together in the church is nothing but the amazing grace of, God, of, of our God. And then the rude awakening of Joseph's final test. The silver cup in Benjamin's bag. That's devastating. How are you going to deal with that? I mean, when you're having a good time together, and you have enough good food and lots of wine, it's easy to get along, right? But how is that when your life and freedom are suddenly at stake? In the rupture caused by the hatred about 20 years ago, is that going to be repeated? Is another innocent man going to end up in slavery? No. They're terrified. They feel crushed. The misery never going to stop, so it seems. But they don't hesitate. We're in this together. So as one man, they return to Joseph's house to face the anger of the Egyptian. Leaving Benjamin alone, as they have done in the past with Joseph, they won't even think of it. 
And did you notice? They don't blame their youngest brother for the mess either. Now today they want to do whatever it takes to save their brother's life, to spare their father's gr father grief and sadness. And that shows a totally different attitude than before, when they had sold Joseph. It's a radical change. And so they return, all of them. Notice a remarkable little detail here, actually. It does not say in the beginning of the text, Joseph's brothers... We've heard that before, but now it says Judah and his brothers. That's interesting. Judah is taking a leading role. He presents himself as the spokesman. Now, Judah was not the oldest one. Reuben, Simeon, and Levi came before him. But more and more it becomes clear that Judah will receive the place of the firstborn. In chapter 49, verse 8 to 12, Jacob is blessing Judah with the promise that from him, the Messiah, the Savior, will come. Judah is carrying the promise that was given to the forefathers, the promise of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice for the forgiveness of all our sins. Think of that for the coming, for the rest of this morning. When his brothers throw themselves to the ground before Joseph, there's not much left of Joseph's friendliness. He pretends to be terribly disappointed. He couldn't trust them. What a dumb thing to do, actually. How could you not realize that a man like me was going to find out? What were you thinking? Judah responds. Not only for himself, on behalf of all of them. And how? He does not apologize. He's not trying to find excuses. There's actually nothing he can say to defend them. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? It doesn't imply that he actually admits that Benjamin was guilty of stealing the cup. But, but they do realize there is guilt. There is real guilt. This is not just about Benjamin. This is much bigger than the petty crime of stealing a cup. Here they are in it together. They recognize what is happening is happening because of us. Because of our unconfessed sins. You know, brothers and sisters, when the word of God, the word of the Holy God, confronts you with yourself, you'll have no basis for an excuse. You have nothing to justify yourself with. You can only acknowledge your guilt. You can only acknowledge that you deserve God's punishment. Don't try to defend yourself. Don't try to find excuses. Humble yourself under the judgment of God. That must be your and my attitude before the holy God. And that's what these men do. God has found out the guilt of your servants, says Judah. In this whole frightening development, they see the hand that God striking them. And God is just. God knows what he is doing. He doesn't make mistakes. When Judah says this, he admits the sins of Jacob's sons. The Egyptian ruler may be upset about his silver cup. But they know that something much bigger is at stake here. 
They're guilty towards the Lord by breaking his covenant, by hating Joseph as God's whistleblower, by selling him into slavery, by living the pagan lifestyle, by lying to their father. They have ruined the covenant community. Now they see the seriousness of it all. Now they see the devastating consequences of their actions. God is punishing them. And they will all end up as slaves in Egypt, just as they had sent Joseph as a slave to Egypt. We are my Lord's slaves, Judah says, both we and the one who was found to have the cup. And from God's side, that will be a fair and just retaliation. Judas' confession of guilt shows that the brothers are ready to bear the punishment they deserve. At the same time, this confession of guilt also shows something else. It shows a new and deep unity among God's children at that time. They're not going to abandon Benjamin like they did Joseph. They're not going to face their father without the boy who was so dear to their heart or lie to their father about it. Do you recognize what's happening? By God's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, jealousy has been conquered. Hatred has been replaced by love and compassion. Look at the attitude towards Rachel's youngest son. Look at the concern for their aging father. This is so amazing. But as we go on here, it goes far beyond what we can do, what we can accomplish. In this collective confession of guilt, God himself brings about the restored unity in his covenant. Only true confession of guilt, only true repentance opens the way for true restoration, for forgiveness and for a new beginning, for real progress on the way of salvation. This is the way of the coming Christ. Judas' confession of guilt reflects the spirit of reconciliation through Jesus through Jesus' suffering and death on the cross. Only that reconciliation on the cross can be the basis for mutual reconciliation among God's children. God's grace alone can tear down the walls between true believers. True believers who, who hang on to whatever divides them. True believers who do not trust each other. Only the grace of God can tear down the walls. Joseph's response to Judah's confession of guilt is clear and fair. He says, no, I'm not going to do that. Take you all as slaves. Why would I do that? Only your youngest brother, the one who committed the crime, he shall be my slave, and the other ones can go. It turns out later that that was his final effort to separate Benjamin from the others. But it's not going to work. On the contrary, they are offended even by the very thought of leaving Egypt and going home without Benjamin. Then Judah asks permission to speak again. One more time, he wants to plead urgently with this angry Egyptian official. The man has the power to do with them whatever he feels like, but perhaps he can move his heart to let Benjamin go in freedom. That's what in verse 18 to 34. And verse 18 to 34, brothers and sisters, 
is such a moving speech. The tone is utterly respectful. He honors the authority of the powerful Egyptian governor. From their point of view, the man is almost equal to Pharaoh himself. Judah's words display a humble attitude. At the same time, he chooses his words carefully and deliberately, and he offers himself, sacrificing himself for his brother. There is something important at stake here. Judah has a proposal, but he knows it can only work if I, if I can present convincing arguments. But here's what's most impressive. Almost every sentence displays so much love, so much compassion, serious concern for Benjamin and for the old father Jacob. It's amazing to see and hear the impact of the grace of God. Judah's words reflect the unity in God's covenant. Judah's words reflect changed hearts. He pictures the events and actions that have led to the situation they find themselves in. It's a summary, of course. And the focus is on what has been said and done with regard to Benjamin. That makes sense, because that's where we can really see that change of heart, the attitude towards Benjamin and their father's love for Benjamin. So, he reminds Joseph of the first meeting they had. At that time, they had told him already about their aged father and the youngest brother. And they had mentioned how much this young man meant to their father. And notice here, the brothers do not mock Benjamin. They do not hate Benjamin. They do not ridicule the special place he has in Jacob's heart. That's what they did when Joseph was still around. And Judah then continues to recall the conversation he had at that time about the demand to bring Benjamin along when they would come back. They had explained already that he would, this could turn out to be next to impossible. His father would never let him go. But the Egyptian governor was adamant about it. Well, guess what? At home, things went exactly as they had anticipated. The father didn't want to hear a word of it. He point blank refused to let Benjamin join them on the next trip to Egypt. It took a lot of discussion and a lot of arguing to get Jacob to cooperate. Now notice the emotional manner in which Judah pictures the hurt and the sadness of his aged father. It's, it's deeply moving. One of the two sons of his most beloved wife disappeared a long time ago. And ever since, the pain and the distress has never left him. Jacob is a depressed old man. So you can imagine, Judah says, what the loss of Benjamin would mean for him. What it would do to him. He wouldn't be able to handle the grief. He would die. You will bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. That's what Jacob had said. How touching here is the loving respect for the father of the covenant family. There's not a trace of resentment or frustration with this his unreasonable stubbornness. The way Judah talks about his father sounds quite different from the rude and disrespectful manner some people talk about, oh, my old man. Perhaps you can learn from that. Well, by now... This should be clear to the Egyptian. 
As soon as I come to my father and the boy is not with us, my father will die. Notice at this moment, Judah does not say, when we come back to our father. He says, when I come back to my father. He takes personal responsibility for the death of his father in that case. After all, he was the one who had said to Jacob, I myself will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame forever. Try to imagine what this meant, all this, this, this conversation, what this meant for the Egyptian governor, for Joseph. Now Judah and his brothers couldn't do that. They couldn't imagine that. They had no idea who they were talking to. But Joseph hears all this as their brother. It must have touched him and moved him deeply. He's not just listening to the story of some more or less interesting stranger. No, he himself is part of the story. He is part, he is the part his brothers don't know yet. And more and more Joseph sees the radical change. Don't you feel how the momentum is building up towards the moment, the very dramatic moment in the beginning of chapter 45? And then Judah tables his urgent appeal. Please, he says, please, let your servant remain here instead of the young man. Let me remain here as my Lord's slave and let the young man go back to his brothers. If I don't bring him back safely, I could never face my father again. I'll be guilty all my life because I failed to keep my promise. Do you recognize what's happening? Here's the counterpart. At the same time, the very opposite of what happened in chapter 37. They hated Joseph. They sold him into slavery. didn't care when he begged for mercy. Compare the two. Now they do whatever it takes to save their brother and spare their father grief and sadness. And look at Judah. Look at Judah's incredible commitment of love and faithfulness. It wasn't even that long ago. That the same Judah was entangled in the immoral lifestyle of the pagan culture in Canaan. You can read about it in chapter 38. And now he offers himself for the youngest brother. He pleads with the Egyptian official to accept his sacrifice. Do you recognize Jesus? Of course. This is the Old Testament. But when Judah promised his father that he would personally guarantee the life and the safety of his brother, he started to resemble Jesus, the Savior of the world. Jesus Christ, who is today the guarantee for you and me, for all God's children. As it says in Hebrews 2, verse 10, He, that is Jesus, is not ashamed to call us brothers before his Father in heaven. Indeed, already in Judah, the Lord shows what his way of reconciliation looks like. The way of reconciliation that, that, that we be, would be completed in Jesus Christ. That's why we find it also the image of suffering. Suffering in someone else's place. Judah wants to take his brother's punishment upon himself. Rather than seeing the suffering of his brother and the grief of his father. The holy and gracious God demonstrates how the line runs from Judah here in Genesis 44 to the suffering servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53 and from Isaiah 53 to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. 
Here's the reconciling power of God's grace. Judas' offer foreshadowed the offer of Jesus. On the cross, he sacrificed himself. And by doing so, he is gathering his covenant people, united in true faith in the Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what's happening here. On the basis of Jesus' sacrifice, the God of all grace and mercy provides real reconciliation, real restoration among his people, also at that time. He works confession of guilt, repentance, and self-denial. Oh, it's true. Took him a while. Joseph's brothers had a long way to go to get to this point. But now it's clear. Now it's undeniable. Praise God for this amazing change, this incredible turnaround. It's really awesome. You come to think of that, my brother, my sister, it's really awesome what happens to a human heart and a human life when God begins to work with the Spirit. God himself makes you discover the connection between your sin, your guilt, your punishment, the mess in your life. And that's not a pretty confrontation, but it is his grace. For this is how you come to confess your sin. This is how you come to find forgiveness. To experience the restoration of your relationship with God and with people around you. When Jacob's sons confessed that the Lord uncovered their sins... It was the spirit of Jesus working in them, especially in Judah. Indeed, Judah's self-sacrificing love reflects the spirit of Jesus' sacrifice. He came into this world serving and giving his life as a ransom for many. He came to take away the sin and the misery from his people. He came to guarantee eternal safety of all who turned to him. Jesus' sacrifice was for reconciliation. And that's why the reconciliation on Golgotha was the source of reconciliation among Joseph's brothers. And reconciliation with the God of the covenant. It was the source of the new unity among God's people. Because of the promised Savior Jesus. And through Judah, the grace of God healed the brokenness and the division in the Old Testament church. And also today, brokenness and division in the church can be healed only in one way and only through the Savior Jesus. Judas' confession and self-sacrifice encourages each one of us to deal with our own sins and then to deal with each other in the church in the same spirit. Can it be done? Yes. The Lord God, the keeper of the covenant, continues his work and renewal by the power of his spirit today. That means, first of all, that he reconciles people to himself. That's where it starts. That's where it has to start. And as he does so, he also reconciles those people into one body, united in soul, united in heart and mind, united in faith. And all this through Jesus Christ, the one and only sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. Because of this sacrifice, he guarantees, not only in the future, the future of God's salvation, in Egypt at that time, but also the future of his salvation in our time, and the future of his salvation forever and ever. Amen.